You're listening to an ACA podcast. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as sovereign custodians of the land on which we work and welcome visitors who have cared for country and culture over millennia and continue to do so. I extend my respects to elders past and present and to all First Nations people here. Tonight's panel is part of the exhibition and research project, Who's Afraid of Public Space? which explored the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life. Who's Afraid of Public Space takes place here at ECA and also extends across Melbourne with a series of satellite exhibitions in collaboration with cultural partners, as well as installations, events, and projects in the public realm. We are gathered tonight at the Reading Space, which was developed for the exhibition by designers Nicola Cortese, Lauren Crockett, and Stephanie, Stephanie Panitz. The space includes a library of written materials on public art, public culture, and public space that have been donated, selected, and recommended as an outcome of an open call and a collaboration with the Melbourne Art Library. Tonight's panel will be led by Andrew Kopolov with Melbourne Art Library. So established in 2020, uh, Melbourne Art Library is a not-for-profit lending library that collects specialized art and design texts. Their reading room is at the Nicholas Building in the CBD, and they're open four days a week. We are also joined today by Spiros Panigikaris from On Projects and Jack Murray from Caliper Journal, who will be further introduced by Andrew. Um, so without further ado, thank you so much for joining us, and I will hand over to Andrew. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Bianca. And thank you to the whole team uh, for having us here. And thanks to all of you guys for coming along, joining us here on um, unceded Wurundjeri land. So this is the final event in a series of discussions that Melbourne Art, uh, Melbourne Art Library has held on the topic of distribution. Uh, and this series has looked at how, how information is distributed and how various local groups have been intervening in that distribution in experimental ways. Tonight we're focusing on art and design publications, so I'm very pleased to be joined by Jack Murray of Caliper Journal, which is a youth-led architecture journal based in Melbourne, and which was also founded by the same lovely people who designed this reading room. Uh, I'm also joined by Spiros Panagirakis of Unprojects and Unmagazine, which is an independent contemporary art magazine, so thanks a lot. Uh, I guess to kick things off, I'd just like to ask you guys to tell us about your organizations and how they got started. And in particular, I'd like to hear uh, whether there was some kind of lack that was identified that your publication set out to address. Should I start? Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> Unmagazine um, started up 18 years ago. The artist Lily Hibbard brought a group of artists, writers, curators, historians together to um, create a, at that point, uh, Melbourne-based magazine that uh, reviewed, platformed independent art practice, um, art practice that um, is um, exhibited in small to medium scale you know, um, art venues, artist-run spaces, artist-run initiatives, 
um, and also um, publishing um, not only um, art reviews but also featuring um, artist pages and artists' writing as well. So I guess that's the lack that was addressed by that um, crew um, 18 years ago. And um, yeah, I'll start there, I guess. I think um, Caliper was set up um, by Lauren and Nick and Steph while they were students to sort of, and I think platforming is a really key word as well, because I think the lack that was identified was that, you know, during the period that you're an architecture student, you're doing like two projects a week for 52 weeks a year. And so much of that work gets presented once and is sort of never seen again after that moment. So I think there's definitely this idea of platforming some of that work, of taking some of those sort of exceptional projects or sort of, you know, things that don't get put on show at the end of semester exhibitions and stuff and platforming them or taking particularly interesting things that might be interesting in the context of an architecture school or kind of more broadly in that context of youth architecture publication and kind of going, how do we platform this? How do we bring that kind of forward? And that sort of mission to some extent has been continuous since it was founded. I guess also in, in that spirit, I think um, a lot of the art that gets presented at artist-run initiatives or other types of independent spaces, you know, there might be at, you know, a two-week show or a one-month show, it, you know, might not get any mainstream critical art attention and since, you know, 18 years ago, there's less of that now than there ever has been, you know, in terms of the mainstream, you know, press, but um, it's also about documenting those projects, those exceptional projects by emerging artists. Um, and getting um, not only um, the discourse that emerges out of that art practice printed, but also the actual, um, you know, documentation of the artwork as well, you know. Absolutely. I think there's, there's definitely something of that in Caliper as well, just in terms of these, these documents that mm -hmm. kind of, like each of these issues comes out irregularly, but there's a certain level of going each one is a kind of capsule of a particular moment of design discourse and of particular practitioners and stuff that are operating kind of around the journal, around the people who are working on it and through the open call outs at that time and just kind of ossifying that one kind of publication as kind of a method of going, well, this is what's happening at this time. Here's how we started to speak about it. I think that's been really valuable. So in what each of you said, there was, uh, you were hinting at how things have changed in the process in the period in which you've had these publication or these publications have existed I, I guess I'd like to know uh, yeah can you can you in maybe broad brushstrokes talk about how that editorial perspective has developed I mean these are publications that have existed for different amounts of time um, 18 years you know and that's quite a while I guess uh, but yeah if I'd love to hear how the editorial perspective has changed for both of you, for both magazines. Yeah. You go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I think something, something to note is that, like, I, while I've written for Caliper Journal since kind of the first issue, I only became part of that editorial process in the last, you know, couple of years. Unfortunately, at the start of COVID. Um, but <laughs> there's a certain level to which that sort of... I remember looking back on that first issue and how kind of, you know, 
it, it really was this sort of primarily student work. It was primarily, there was a lot of very quick thoughts, a lot of kind of, um, I would say, insular sort of things of like, you know, we knew RMIT architecture people, well, there are a few kind of exceptions to that. That was predominantly what was being kind of examined. And I think over the lifespan of the publication with each issue, that kind of remit has sort of broadened out to include, you know, what are adjacent disciplines or people who are writing about architecture or writing around kind of these thematics that we set up for each issue. Um, and how do we start to bring people sort of outside of that initial kind of slightly more bubbled student thing into this sort of publication that starts to bring together, you know, currently working practitioners, people from, you know, PhDs in different disciplines, um, artists, designers, writers, all of these people, architects, and how we start to like wrap all of that around a theme is something I think that has developed really strongly with kind of all of the editors and how we've sort of pushed each of these ideas forward. Um, I think what's happened over the 18 years of UN uh, magazine, which is produced by UN projects, um, is that in the, in, I guess, in the beginning or in the first, you know, maybe four or five years, each issue um, really um, was a, you know, a collection of reviews, artist features, um, and really the difference between the early, the early years and the last maybe six years is um, thematic, um, th um, thematic um, issues over, over a year and each year there's a different editor or editorial team that takes the helm of the magazine and really they drive the, the, the issues, the two issues per year. So um, really in the mo mo most recent years, it's the, the two different editors of each issue that has shifted the agenda from year to year. Um, so um, it really just depends on their, um, I guess their vision, um, um, but it has, it is kind of shifted to a different type of magazine, I guess in a way, only because also we've got it online, um, um, uh, we've got online reviews, and so I guess the um, the remit of um, un um, reviewing art on the ground is is taken care of by you know our 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 website, and I guess the issues themselves are dealing with the um, you know say um, the the different um, the different the different themes of you know that snack syndicate. Um, um, brings together or, um, or this year's editors, Dee Harding and Hilary Thurlow. So that's, you know, it's their job this year to come up with the editorial theme um, or the editorial agenda for 2022. And so um, it just shifts from year to year, I guess. I suppose that was something kind of interesting that happened in the last couple of years when, you know, the sort of new crop of about six editors took over after Lauren and Nick and Steph kind of stepped back from the journal a little bit towards a more managerial sort of position, is that, you know, the first kind of six issues sort of each, or five, I think, of six issues, each had like a guest editor that sort of pushed that theme forward. And then, especially going into kind of 
post-COVID, we sort of had this moment of going, especially because there were six of us going from three, it sort of was like, well, in this sense, we kind of are setting the editorial agenda as a group. This is something that we're deciding on together. And then with Shift, which was the issue um, in that blue, the light blue issue, when COVID hit, and we sort of went, well, we're going to do an online one this time. There's a certain level of just going like, how do we, how do we have this theme that is about change and is about shift without necessarily going like, let's bring in a new guest editor to deal with this one. We've already got six people, all of whom are pushing certain barrows around agendas that they bring to the magazine and all the stuff, which is great and I think has been really valuable. And it's only now in our next issue that we're kind of going back to getting a guest editor on board to start to kind of shape some of that thematic. Um, that makes me wonder, you know, in terms of the roles of specific editors in shaping the agenda of the magazine. And Spiros, I know you yourself, you're not an editor, but nonetheless, I guess, given that both of you are sort of creative practitioners, I'd, I'd love to hear about the relationship between your work in terms of publishing and your creative work. Uh, how those things, you know, is there... A, a distinctive gap between the two? Do you see them feeding into one another? Um, are there similarities in the processes involved? Yeah. What do you guys think? Uh, whilst I haven't, you know, edited the magazine, I've, you know, before I was chair many years ago, um, wrote for the magazine on a number of occasions. And I guess when I became a chair, I wanted to kind of get an overview of the organisation. So I joined the editorial committee for a couple of years, just to get a sense of, um, I guess, the scope of the, of the magazine. And I can't, you know, it was the most nourishing and exciting kind of debates. You know, I'm an academic and an artist, and um, I guess um, being on the editorial committee for me was, you know, getting engaged in the debates of, in relationship to art and independent art practice and the issues that mattered. And they're like heated, heated conversations over many hours. And I was like going, this is, this is it, right? Like this is, this is the actual, really, the, the exciting part of the production of the magazine, the kind of grappling with the ideas, collaborating with a number of people on the editorial committee, but also the editors and trying to, um, I, I guess, get the, I, um, get the, various ideas of the edit, um, I guess that editorial vision up and up, up into the magazine or kind of produced within the magazine or the pages of the magazine. Yeah. It's sort of interesting, like, um, speaking with you, it's like the chair of on magazine on projects is like, I think for me, at least within Caliper, I've kind of lent more towards the sort of production management side of the journal and kind of stepped back a little bit from the creative side of it and it's been really interesting as kind of a thing of going you know there are so many incredible creative people who are working on caliper and i think with all of the contributors and the way in which we sort of develop these projects through the editorial process like some of these submissions in the piece come to us extremely rough or just as kind of a sketch of an idea and some come fully formed and i think you know the, the creativity in it is through those discussions and the ordering of these things and how these things start to develop. And like we've got a couple of the current editors, um, Simon and Tori, here. And I think, you know, as 
a creative act of putting this thing together. It's in, for me, it's in the curation and in the kind of discussions that we have as an editorial committee in kind of the same way, where it's like, how do you put all of these things together in a way? I need like a plosives filter for my aggressive peas. Um, how do you put all of these things together in a way that starts to talk to the theme and through all of the reviews and the conversations that we have around this? It's, it's nourishing. It's absolutely nourishing to have this sort of conversation around, you know, our, our themes are very broad, like faith being the most recent. It's like having that conversation about what exactly does that mean in an architectural context and, you know, it's not just churches, it's all these other things that we have faith in or have faith around and that conversation around that issue of thematic and how we start to put this stuff together. That's the creative aspect of this for me, rather than necessarily, you know, pushing some particular creative vision that's unique to me, because I think... Yeah. I should also add that Catherine Honey is in the audience <laughs> and as the general manager of the magazine and like Sarah Gorey before her, it, like, this magazine takes more than just an editorial process, but uh, very substantial logistical management of all the different moving parts. Um, and um, that is not only uh, about the writing, and, um, uh, but also about um, you know, the funding and um, <laughs> the funding over many years and acquiring the funding over many years, yeah. But um, I, I think also another um, really important part of the editorial process for Unmagazine and has been since, for, since day one is the mentoring of emerging writers. Um, so uh, whilst it isn't a, you know, solely for emerging writers or artists because, um, you know, there's different types of, you know, um, I guess stages of, of um, practice that engage independent art practice, it's not just emerging, but e every issue we're, we're committed to um, mentoring um, younger or emerging writers as part of the, the editorial process, so, yeah. Talking about the logistical process and some of the more operations-based uh, elements required to run a publication, I guess I'm, I'm interested, uh, Spiracy, talking specifically about funding, and I'm just thinking about, um, say, alternative modes of funding as well as things like crowdsourcing or, or you know, Patreon is a big thing nowadays perhaps not so much in publishing, but do you think that some models like that might have relevance to our, our design publication? Yes. I mean, we need... <laughs> <laughs> done. Answer done. No more, no more needs to be said. I mean, it, <laughs> the thing is, it's a shrinking, it seems like an increasingly shrinking pool of funding for independent arts organisations, um, artist-run initiatives, and um, we're part of, you know, like, we're part of that, you know, like, we're, we're trying to get the same funding that our friends at other artist-run organisations are getting, and we're competing against each other. We need alternative ways of, of, of fundraising, but all of it requires labour, right? So even the fundraising requires labour. Um, and, you know, and so um, who's got that time and, like, do you know what I mean? Like, um, to do the fundraising, right? You know, so you think of different, you know, different ideas like um, <clears throat> art auctions or 
um, artists, you know, contributing, you know, art artworks to fundraisers. But that's, you know, all the other artist-run organisations are also doing the same thing, right? And we're all buying each other work, uh, each other's work to support other organisations. Do you know what I mean? So we do need something else. We do need to kind of think more creatively about this. And it definitely ends up being that, like, so many of these solutions, I think, like, Caliper has been very fortunate to, like, initially take a, a large chunk out of Lauren and Nick and Steph's pockets, I think, but then also to have really productive sponsorship arrangements with, like, we've had a lot of, you know, architecture companies sponsor, and, like, our major sponsor has been, you know, RMIT University, and mm. the architecture department there has been extremely kind of generous in supporting something that is kind of this student-led independent thing. But, like, so much of this funding stuff, especially trying to look for new models of funding, comes down to who else can we get to do free work? Mm. And that's, like, it's a huge issue with so much of, like, the art and design industry is, like, when it comes down to who can we get to do free work to fund this new thing, which might be good for a career or might be good for you getting more money later. And it's, like, we, we've struggled with this for a very long time, mm. I think, in terms of our contributors are volunteers, all of our kind of editorial staff are volunteers, and it just, it ends up being really difficult game to play in terms of like, especially with even just editorial direction of like, you've got someone who's doing this for free and you're like, how many edits can I conceivably get them to make before they start hating me? It's like, <laughs> there's, there's an element like, everyone's working for free. And it's a, it's a horrible situation. We don't want to be that situation. But like, as you say, this pool of funding for arts and design is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and more and more people mm -hmm. want to do more and more work. And the money that's available is just so limited. Like I imagine, you know, even if we started going for the same grant funding as, you know, on projects or stuff, it'd be like, we'd be competing as well. And it's like, yeah. I, I don't think anybody wants that to be the case. I don't think anybody thinks that is a sustainable mode of practice for publication. Mm. So these like alternate ways of funding are definitely something that, you know, everyone's going to have to start considering in some way, but I don't necessarily think that's a good thing in itself. It's necessary because I think publishing is important, but it's like, at the end of the day, it's like if everyone is, you know, taking 10 bucks out of your wallet a month to make these journals run, it's like you're sort of absolving someone of responsibility and I don't necessarily want to say who, but... I, I, I guess um, I think with what I found refreshing about Un Magazine when I first started in 2018-19 was the commitment to paying all the writers and artists and editors. And so that costs. And, you know, so everyone in the magazine has a writer's fee or an artist fee and an editorial fee. But if you add all that up, <laughs> there's around, you know, 20 or up to 20 to 25 people that are getting paid for every issue. Um, you know, um, that's hard work to fundraise over the many years. But we've been very fortunate, I guess, to get to receive funding from, you know, City of Yarra, Creative Victoria. Um, um, we're knocking on the door of Australia Council. <laughs> but, uh, Constantly. Um, <laughs> and, um, but, and, I mean, but, yeah, and so that, you know, that's... But all of those are from year to year or every couple of years. And um, so it's, um, it's okay, but it's always just okay, you know. And so I guess the, the, the people, 
the time that we basically use is the people on the editorial committee or the board who are essentially doing pro bono work and really, you know, why I work at Monash and so some of the time <laughs> that I should be on, you know, working on my research, I'm, you know, putting towards this and everyone on the board or ed editorial committee is doing the same thing. They have other paid jobs and we're um, surreptitiously using some of that time to, <laughs> to support a venture like this, which I guess the institution supports in some ways, yeah. Definitely the yeah. same with us, for yeah. sure. Um, <laughs> so, to jump around a bit um, and, and talk again about your readership, uh, something you mentioned, uh, Jack, you previously touched on this and Spiros, you were talking about, you know, your, um, the community of other people who are also competing for funding and your peers, let's say. So, I guess I'm, I'm interested to talk about uh, accessibility, right, and and uh, broadening the bubble that you, uh, the bubble of people that see what you publish. Uh, so I guess, yeah, one way to phrase that as a question would be to say, do you feel ever that there is, you know, sort of uh, competing demands in terms of, well, either it will will make something that's highly specialized and that will be greatly enjoyed by a select group of learned individuals <laughs> or you know do you do you have to compromise on quality ever to reach a broader audience or isn't that the case it's interesting like we we constantly have this conversation internally of like how accessible is something or like i'm i think at least internally somewhat notable for my taste for completely esoteric nonsense, um, which is not a taste shared by everyone, I'm well aware. And I think, like, even within the issue, it's nice, at least on the editorial board, to have that difference of opinion and to try and bring lots and lots and lots of people, like, you know, Lars and Nick and Steph still kind of do a read-through of these issues, even after they've stepped away, to kind of, and give incredibly valuable feedback around, like, you know, this makes no sense. What, what does this mean? And it's like, but I've been working with this, you know, contributor for the last two months, so it's in my head, but it's really nice to have external perspectives to be like, this doesn't make sense, this needs to be more accessible. And I think it's always, like, for us, about trying to strike this balance, even across the pieces in the issue of going, there's so much variety or so much kind of difference in the types of people we're approaching that if something is, you know, is for a kind of slightly more specialised or academic audience in that context. It's like, skip it. You know, there's more stuff in there. Some of it's, you know, slightly more fun. The six-page piece about, you know, the history of the Philippines under martial law can wait until you're in a space where <laughs> reading eight pages about the history of martial law in the Philippines might be something that you're interested in. But I think, like, being able to go, like, accessibility, I think, for us is not necessarily about making every single piece equally accessible. I think it's about making the journal sort of across the board, there is something that is going to be accessible or something that is going to be specific to the people who are going to read it. And I think that's kind of, you know, while I've been on the editorial team, that's something we've been really trying to do in terms of broadening that bubble, as you say, of, like, going, let's get different 
disciplines in. Let's get different writers in to try and make that bubble slightly wider. And I think, like, you know, I've talked to people who have no interest in architecture and design. Like, I have a friend who's a hairdresser who bought a copy of this and is, like, a brilliant hairdresser and just goes, I skipped about half of the pieces, but the half that I read I really liked. And it's like, that's the response I think, at least I really appreciate, of just, like, cool, you got something out of it. If you read one piece and enjoy it, I think that covers accessibility to some extent. You know, there's something in there that's published for you, and that's important. Um, I guess I'll answer the accessibility question maybe differently in a, in a way, in maybe in a more literal sense, <laughs> um, just in terms of the way we distribute or have distributed Un, Un Magazine, both in the past and what happened during COVID. Um, so in the pre-COVID, we distributed the magazine across um, the network of artist-run initiatives, really across Australia or independent project spaces. Um, and so it was freely available. And so in a way, our audience was tied to those exhibition venues, I guess, in many ways. So it was at the front of... Um, so in, in Melbourne, it was at the front of, of ACCA, but it was also at King's or Westspace and in Brisbane in, at the IMA or at Art Space in Sydney. Um, I, I guess during what happened um, during um, lockdown and I guess Melbourne's lockdown was, and also that, you know, coincided with a drop in our funding, you know, to some degree. We had to, we had to change tack because all of those venues that we distributed the magazine um, were either now closed. <laughs> um, and, and so what we decided to do was um, to relaunch our website. We were always online, so we were always replicating the magazine um, online, like totally, but really we wanted a better um, website to host. Shopfront. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Um, and, and really, you know, five or six years is, is maybe a long time in terms of a website, so it was beginning to age badly. So Rowan McNaught redeveloped our, webs our website and it's looks amazing and it now hosts the magazine and I think in a kind of really compatible way to the to the print. Um, the print run is since COVID has, sh has shrunk where we're, um, we've got a sh now a kind of really you know small fee for a s subscription model. Um, what was interesting in when I first came in in 2018 they had just the board had just done a readership survey which and the readership was saying, we do not want this to go online. And more recently, you know, like it was like in 2018 or, you know, or, or I think it was 2017, the readership did not want it to go online. But now there's no issue at all. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, and it's, that's not that long ago, 2018. But, you know, like the survey, I think would be very different now. Um, yeah. I think the online thing is like really interesting. Like obviously we sort of, at the start of um, 2020, um, into 2019, we kind of, you know, had full plans to go into a complete physical issue, launch party, the whole shebang, and then, you know, 2020 happened, as it did, and, you know, we had that kind of, we were publishing, you know, one piece a week online, and then that was a really different model for us, and kind of worked sort of interestingly, but was kind of, it took a huge amount of effort to kind of keep something like that running. So as we kind of got into the second half of 2020 and the, the landscape shifted a little bit more, um, you know, we combined that first 
strange issue that was published weekly into a second issue of Time, and that was what that double issue was, was that capsule of 2020. And then, like, we did completely redevelop our website in no small part thanks to Tori. And that's now kind of primarily become, you know, a shop front because we used to sell, you know, our sale model is pretty much just you pay your money, you get the issue. It's not much more than that. Um, but, like, we redeveloped our whole website because that was the only place we could sell it because we sold most of our issues at launch events. We sold most of our issues at, like, RMIT Architecture Exhibition. And when that all shifts online, it's like we have to mm. completely restructure how we get this magazine out to people and the online sale was really the only way we could make that happen. And me frantically boxing, <laughs> packing calipers and sending, like, 200 of them out when we do our first, like, big online launch. That is a lot of work. And actually, we've got this fold-out poster that wraps around each issue and poor, poor <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of folded... Yeah. <laughs> you've got it down. Have you got like one of those T-shirt folders that kind of does the little machine? Yeah. Um, so in terms of digitising this content and putting it online, it, it makes me wonder... Uh, in general, whether through the the time that you've both been at, at these publications, whether specific types of material or certain media uh, you've found. I mean, evidently some things are more readily transferable to publication or even to online than others, but are there some things that you found, oh, it would have been great to publish this, but it just doesn't lend itself to publication? Has anything like that happened? Well, I guess um, our new format, which coincided with the website, there's been a shift in... We went to black and white, but the cover's a, a, po a coloured poster, so I guess, you know, the artworks, um, you know, are um, both printed in black and white and need to be OK, but also the online space is a space where we can host video, sound works, um, you know, um, um, you know, media-based works that we can't in the in the um, publication. And there's also a couple of say, you might have a text in the magazine, but you might have an expanded text online, which isn't you know we we can't allow for that space in the magazine because there might be constraints. But then it might be accompanied by a sound work or something like that. So I guess actually the the website in relationship to the magazine. It's, it's, it's almost like married, right? Like, it's not just one or the other. It's actually how they both can complement each other, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely as we started to go into 2020 and 2021, the sort of work that we saw coming out of students kind of started to take on more of that characteristic in terms of, like, new architecture work was, like, there was a lot more video-based work. There was a lot more kind of that sort of thing. And it was like, well, um, we can't really... I can't really print that, or we have to find some different way of printing it that sort of, you know, we had to work with a lot of these contributors to sort of find some sort of method by which their work could still be in print and still contain some of that stuff. So there's, like, we've had an animation or two and we have made hefty use of QR codes to kind of link these two things together. And I think it's sort of interesting that when you look at publications from, like, 
I don't know if anyone in the audience can tell me when Mongrel Rapture was published, but like the ARM monograph is full of QR codes, most of which are now dead links, which is hilarious to me. But the, the idea that like that used to be something that was slightly strange, slightly weird, you had to get a special app to do it. And now like it's kind of just normalized that link between physical and online spaces to just sort of go, oh, there's a QR code. I know exactly what to do with that now. The service Victoria app might not scan it, but something will. And being able to link those two things together in that much more direct way, I think is really helpful for works like uh, we had an animation with a beautiful piece of text. And the animation kind of, we took stills from it and you know worked through that in the publication process. And then just put a big bang in QR code in there. And I think having that moment of going, I know what to do with this. I can get that extra five bits of the piece instantly is really valuable. So we'll, we'll move on to some audience questions in a minute, but before we do, I just wanted to ask you guys, maybe uh, if you could share, maybe if you have a favorite publishing platform other than your own that you might want to, I'm putting you on the spot, I know, but. <laughs> I really like Unmagazine. I think Unmagazine's great. Well, Calipers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of the Architectural Review. I think they're quite good. There's a nice sort of mix of architectural-based text and critical writing and all of this sort of stuff. And it's sort of a nice, a nice mix of place as well versus something like, I think the obvious answer for a lot of architecture people would be Log Magazine, but I think they're quite um, America-central in a lot of ways and they sort of get very insular about American discourse. But I think, yeah, Architectural Review and Log are both really good. Um, Beaver Street, which is... Uh um, American, New York-based um, um, artist-run organisation engages politics, um, culture, art. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. I mean, we'll move over to the audience now. If anyone... Bianca, I'm not sure. We probably can't pass around microphones, right? Or yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so Sick. if anyone um, wants to put... You know, if anyone has a question, just raise your hand and... What's, what's fun about being part of an independent, um, yeah, like what, what's, what do you find fun about it? Why would someone start something? Oh my God. Is it even fun? Fun? <laughs> the people, the people, 100%, 100%, like, you know, the work is interesting, the work is really, you know, difficult and challenging and rewarding, but the ability to have such a wonderful group of collaborators, like I think when... Um, Nick and Lauren and Steph sort of passed over direct the editorship of the magazine and sort of stepped back a little bit. The kind of group of people that was assembled to take that forward, I did not know any of them particularly well, um, save one or two. And I think that group of people is now some of like my closest friends and collaborators and that is unbelievably valuable. And contributors as well, like all of the people we've worked with have just been so generous and delightful and wonderful and write brilliant pieces about the spa Andrew Kopolov you can find in Faith. Um, but yeah, that's so much fun, having those conversations. Um, I, I don't think about fun so much, <laughs> um, just in relationship to the, my role on the board, I, I guess, because I think, you know, I guess a group of us is thinking about 
the funding, the fundraising, how we're going to support, um, you know, uh, the different roles and, um, you know, uh, so I guess uh, rewarding might be a better <laughs> way that I think about the magazine and kind of thinking about, you know, you know um, the editorial process and actually maybe the, the fun part is actually um, looking at the expressions of interest and, and, and seeing the, the wealth of experience out there and the contributions, um, that's actually um, a really kind of exciting, it's almost like opening up a kind of present and kind of going, wow, they, these submissions to each issue, which has a different kind of, um, um, you know, theme or um, that's, uh, I don't know if it's fun, but it's exciting. Right? So. 100%, 100% <laughs> yeah. on the same like page. A, that like submissions thing yeah. is so good. Um, Spiros, you mentioned, I think you mentioned before that UN had started as a Melbourne kind of focused publication, but you said that in a way that suggested it wasn't any longer. So I wonder kind of for both of you, where does place come into the magazine if it does? And are you kind of conscious that you're publishing from Melbourne and does that yeah, remain a focal point? Well. A few things, you know, over the last few years, we've just had a number of interstate editors. So, you know, I guess, you know, this year we've got D. Harding based in um, um, Brisbane and, well, Hilary Thurlow's based here, but last year we had Snack Syndicate based in, in, in Sydney. Um, so, and I guess what was really great, the only great thing about Zoom was that actually a number, you know, some meetings that didn't need to be in person went online. So the editorial committee is Australia-wide. So it's Perth, you know, uh, sorry, Catherine, where, where is a Perth, Darwin, Brisbane, Adelaide, Yeah. So that's really great, right? So pre-Zoom, you know, like we all roll our eyes, we don't want another Zoom meeting, but actually, in a way, the editorial process has now become national. And we just had an expression, we just had a series of expression of interest for different roles and we were just like, this is exciting. Like we had more interstaters than Melbournians apply. So it was really fantastic, yeah. Sort of interesting, like I think our editorial sort of process has stayed very local, but I think we've kind of tried to push our contributors because they kind of, we do sort of less reviews of specific place-based things like in the, you know, galleries and stuff, our contributors are kind of stretching and stretching and stretching as far as like a lot of them are still Melbourne-based because that's our network and kind of the, the circles in which we're able to kind of get some influence. But we're kind of, you know, every issue has sort of been more and more national and more and more international, like I think pushing that number up and up and up and like how many people can we get from, you know, and just sort of approaching some people as well, especially for the interviews and stuff of like, I think, I don't think we're going to get a reply, but we did message the Pope to see if we could get an interview for Faith. So it's sort of like pushing that forward to try and go, who can we get? Who, who would be interested in talking about this? Can we get, you know, someone at a university in America to put a little thing up saying this magazine is calling for submissions, can we get something in London, like trying to push that more and more. And I think the online thing has definitely made working with people overseas much easier and, you know, interviews so much easier. Now Zoom can just record really easily, unlike Skype, which was always a hassle. <laughs> can I add, I 
We uh, do launches, particularly where the editors are based. So the launch of the next issue, 16.1, um, will be at the IMA um, nearby where Dale is and, and, and Hillary's from. And hopefully we'll do a launch here in Melbourne as well, just for the local yokels. But I think that's way, a way that we grow the audience is by being present in that state. And we're hoping not only to do that in centres, but also have a focus on, on different um, you know, regional galleries and, and, and odd spaces in libraries, you know, in, in, in regions that aren't even regional centres, you know, like get it out there and... Um, yeah, and that was, um, that was part of the conversation we had with Dale when, when we were initiating the conversation for Dale to... Um, or, uh, Dee to uh, edit the magazine for this year was, you know, uh, they wanted a... Um, uh, presence in regional centres, but also for us to contribute our archive to those regional centres, so that that galleries in um, you know in Albury or Rockhampton would also have a set of our you know um, or you know the last ten years of our of our publication there at hand to distribute. So um, that was you know Dee's um, um, initiative, and we're really excited to be able to support that. Yeah, it's amazing. Little unhubs. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully we'll um, be able to extend to New Zealand at some point too. Yeah. Funding. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Funding pending. <laughs> Funding permitted, yeah. Events are pretty fun. Like, I think that was always such a critical part, like, in a, in a boring sense of funding for us, of, like, the launch event, trying to, you know, shift as many of them as humanly possible at the launch events was vital and then sort of you know, taking over just as we went into COVID. It was like, well, we can try an online one or we, or we can just kind of go, it's now on for sale and you can buy it. And losing that was like, A, it was a, a sort of material funding hit, but then it was also just a hit to kind of being able to build that community and stuff of like, you know, there are so many fantastic local contributors and I think being able to have those events where, you know, you can have all of these people, especially from different disciplines, the more and more we got, you know, different folks involved. And kind of the prospect of being able to continue to sort of have those discussions in person and have those kind of collaborations and communities start to build up again in physical locations, it's like you can get some kind of conversations happening over online forums, but it's, it's not going to be the same as, you know, in-person events and being able to you know, go for a drink and have a chat with someone afterwards. That's just something that's entirely lost as an opportunity. Yeah, we, we're looking forward to this year and next year having a series of, you know, events, you know, different spaces across Australia, but also these types of panel conversations as well. I think, um, yeah, um, I think it was in 2018 with... Um, Babak and Thomas's issues. Uh, there was even a kind of reading group that that led up to each issue. So a kind of group of people to kind of, you know, um, it's, so these kind of discursive events are really important to un as well. Yeah. And I think the thing, like, the discursive event has just reminded me of something like in that sort of period that we had where, you know, restrictions are eased and then, you know, they're back on and raised, mm. eased and back on, we kind of managed to sneak in a couple of, like, round tables, I suppose, for the issues. Like Faith, um, we didn't do one, but Permission, the new 
issue coming out in June, we did do a roundtable in one of those gaps. And being able to kind of have everyone around to just sort of discuss that thematic and discuss this new issue and what it might mean or might do is like, that was incredibly valuable. And I don't think something we mm. could have done during sort of these online things even. Yeah. If I, it was technically possible, you know. No, we didn't, yeah. I mean, I guess the last two years have been very Zoom-centric for us. And um, just because when Melbourne wasn't in lockdown, Sydney was, and we had Sydney editors last year. So it, we, we just, <laughs> we weren't very well aligned, I guess. You know, I guess. So um, that really spoiled things. And I guess last year was just really difficult in, I mean, stating the obvious but there was a Zoom exhaustion and really no one wanted a Zoom launch of a magazine, really, I think. And it's just really... It's, ama it's actually amazing just to see people in a space like this, actually. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> um, let's do this for run. Yeah, come. Yeah. <laughs> Continue doing this. You just stay here. Like, is anyone going to stop you? You just stay here for a couple of months. You could launch on here. Yeah. <laughs> Sit in. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> um, yeah, thank you both so much for joining us, and thanks to all of you, and in the spirit of live events, uh, we'll see you at the bar. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Andrew, Jack, and Spiros, that was excellent. Um, and thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, please do join us in the foyer after this. Um, again, there is a bar and a few drinks um, and some snacks. Um, but also, I'd like to share um, that this exhibition is actually in its final week. So we are closing on Sunday, and we have a huge closing weekend program, which is um, an artist car boot fair called Dust Boot at the ACA Forecourt, and that's happening from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So bring cash, bring friends, there'll be food and drinks, lots of art, and everything is also on our website if you want to know more. Um, that's it for me. Thank you again to the panel. Another round of applause, please. Okay.